Uh, just a couple things. First is on June 10, uh, before I dive into the sermon, June 10 is going to be our next elder installation service. Uh, this is going to be a really, really important time for us because for the past five years, we've only had four elders, uh, and we're installing our fifth elder, Peter Ochoa. He's been uh, just a fa- he and his wife and his family have been really faithful here. Uh, it's going to be a really special time. He'll be up here on the stage, and we'll be laying our hands upon him, praying for him, uh, and so please, we hope to see you guys there. And then also, most importantly, uh, corporate prayer is the last Wednesday of every month, which is actually this Wednesday. Uh, so we just gather right here at 7.30. So this Wednesday from 7.30 to about 8.30, we try to keep it to a fixed, focused hour of corporate prayer together. Uh, Pastor Mike and I just spoke about last, the last month's prayer time together. It was just such a, such a precious time for those of you that were here. So please, we hope to see you guys, see you guys there. Uh, I'm just going to pray uh, briefly, and then we're going we're gonna to jump jump right in, be in chapter 3 of Habakkuk. Well, Father, we thank you for this time that we can worship Jesus. We thank you for this time we can set our feet upon the solid rock of Christ. Uh, regardless of the gloomy weather outside and and all of our various circumstances, the weeks that we've all had, we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would help us uh, to be encouraged, to see Jesus, to be strengthened by him, to see him to be an even more mighty savior than he already is to us, Lord. Help me now as I uh, teach and preach your word. Help me to do it with clarity and conviction and joy and love. We ask for your help now. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we're coming uh, sadly to the end of our series in Habakkuk. We've been on a very deep journey with the prophet Habakkuk. Uh, I'm going to be kicking off chapter 3. If you don't know where the book of Habakkuk is, uh, just go to the end of your Old Testament and flip back just a few books and you'll be there. We'll be in chapter 3. Uh, But before I dive into chapter 3, I just think it'd be really helpful if I go back over just where we've been very briefly, because it's really going to help you understand what's happening in chapter 3. Okay, so if you actually have your Bibles open or your phones on, that's that's totally fine. We don't don't despise the the, the, the phone app, excuse me, the Bible app, that is totally cool. Uh, Go back to chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and and this is is really all Habakkuk is. It's a complaint, by, a complaint by a prophet, God's response, another complaint by the prophet, God's response, and then at the very end, the prophet worships this God. So chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, is essentially Habakkuk's complaint to God about the people of God, how they've, they've disintegrated into moral chaos. They neglected God's justice, neglected God's law, and Habakkuk's going, what are you doing? You're just sitting back doing nothing. And then verses 5 through 11 is Habakkuk's, excuse me, is God's first response. And he says, I am doing something. I am not sitting by idly. I am raising up a nation more wicked than you, the Chaldeans. And I'm going to actually use them to judge you for your wickedness. And then verse 12, all the way through the very beginning of chapter 2, is Habakkuk's second complaint in response to God's first answer. He says, but I thought you were a holy God. You're a holy God. How can you use a more wicked nation than us to judge us? How does that even work? I thought you were a holy God. And then all of chapter 2, essentially, is God's last and final response 
after chapter 2, we don't hear from God again. And his response is twofold. Number one is, I am a holy God. And if you want to be preserved, Habakkuk, you must trust in me. You must stop trusting in yourself. Chapter 2, verse 4 says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by faith. If you want to be right with me, Habakkuk, if your people want to be right, if you want to be reconciled with me, you must put your faith in me and not stop, and stop trusting in yourself. And the other side of God's response is this. I'm God, Habakkuk. I am holy, and I will never let the, the Chaldeans get off the hook because my glory and my name will be vindicated in the end over all evil, injustice, and sin. You can see this in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 2, if you have your Bibles open. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that the peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? That's a question. It's a rhetorical question. The answer is yes, they labor themselves for nothing. The Chaldeans, in the end, are doing all of their work for their own kingdom for nothing. Why? Verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is why Habakkuk needs to just be quiet. And that's how it ends. God's final, the last thing God says is verse 20 of chapter 2. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. I have down here in my notes, this is God's mic drop. He says, I'm God, Habakkuk. I am God and there is none like me. I am God, declaring the end from the beginning, for in ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I am a holy God. He drops his mic and God says nothing else because he has nothing else to say. Habakkuk has reached the end of his interrogation. I have, you know, a five-year-old daughter now and she keeps, she's, she's figured out, the she understands the word why now. It can get exhausting the amount of time she can ask why. There's, Habakkuk cannot ask why anymore. When God says, I'm God, who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to its molder, why have you made me like this? And when you are confronted with the godness of God, when you are confronted with the invincible purpose of God to glorify and vindicate his name over all things for all eternity in Jesus Christ, you can either have two responses. One, you can walk away, or two, you can worship. Habakkuk worships. And you can see this shift in the heart of Habakkuk in chapter 3, verse 1. Look with me at Habakkuk 3, verse 1. So the last verse in 20, chapter 2, verse 20. God says, let all the earth keep silence before him. He drops his mic. Chapter 3, verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shigianoth. 
I've practiced that word a lot this week. (laughs) Technically, the whole entire book of Habakkuk is a prayer. But this prayer is according to Shigianoth. Most scholars agree that that word Shigianoth is a musical term for a worship setting. So this prayer is a prayer of worship. He doesn't walk away. He worships. We also know it's a prayer of worship because if you notice in verse 3, verse 9, and verse 13, the word Selah is used. What other book in the Bible do you see that in? The book of Psalms. The book of Psalms in this little passage is the only place that that word shows up. So that's clear. You can see it's clear that a shift has taken place in the heart of Habakkuk. He's no longer interrogating God. I'm done putting you in the dock. You are God. And I'm going to worship you. And this is my response. And so that's my prayer today. My prayer today is that we would all not walk away. But that we would all worship. So the title of my sermon today is very simple. It's don't walk away. That's it. Don't walk away. Worship. We may see some things today that are very hard to hear. When When you get up into the peaks of the Mount Everest of God's glory, sometimes it can be hard to hear, hard to swallow. And my prayer is that we would all follow in Habakkuk's footsteps and not walk away from this God, but worship him. So let's dive in. Verse 2. Verse 2. In submitting to God's purposes, Habakkuk recalls another time when God judged his enemies and saved Israel in the Exodus. And he's essentially saying, I remember when you did that. I wasn't there, but I heard about it. Would you do that again? And would you be merciful to us? Look at verse 2. Oh, Lord, I have heard the reports of you. Another translation of report is fame. I've heard of your fame. And your work, oh, Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, that is, In our day, God, in the midst of the years, revive it. What is it? The work that God did in the Exodus. Do it again. Revive it. Bring it back. In the midst of the years, make it known. And here's the core of Habakkuk's prayer, the last phrase. In wrath, remember mercy. Now here's my question. Wrath against whom? It doesn't say. It just says, in wrath. Wrath against whom? Based upon the immediate previous context, it's all about God's wrath against the Chaldeans. And after this verse and onwards, the only time that wrath is used is against other places in creation or the nations, but never against God's people. So I think what he's saying is, in wrath against the Chaldeans, in wrath against your enemies, be merciful to us, your people. But why does he even feel the need to ask for mercy? If he knew that back in the Exodus, he was, he's, he was merciful to the people of Israel, why does he feel the need to ask for mercy again? 
It's because he knows that when Israel was in slavery of Egypt, with Egypt, they were suffering unjustly, innocently. They had done nothing to be whipped in the back as slaves under Egypt. But he knows that present day Israel, when the Chaldeans come to discipline them by the hand of God, to judge them by the hand of God, that they deserve it. That's chapters 1, verses 1 through 4. Habakkuk's prayer is essentially, we did this to ourselves, God. We don't deserve mercy. We we deserve to be judged with the Chaldeans too. But he still asks. There's nothing in himself. He and the people have nothing inherent in themselves upon which they can say, because of this, you should be merciful to us. He's like, there's nothing in us. The only reason he can appeal to God for mercy is because he knows the nature and character of this God. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. He knows this God. And maybe, here's, here's, I want to turn it upon us. Maybe you feel like Habakkuk right now. Maybe you look back on a time period in your life, and maybe you're in it right now. You've got some, some secret dark places where you're like, I cannot believe that I got myself into this situation. The decisions that I've made. I did this to myself. God should not be merciful to me. You cannot imagine God being merciful to you because the place that you're in was because of your own choices. You've brought the consequences upon yourself. We all have had those moments. Follow Habakkuk's lead. Appeal to his character. Stop trying to clean yourself up. up, up. If you continue to try to clean yourself up, you are wiping yourself off with bloody hands. The more you wipe yourself off, the more bloody your garments become. You must look to the one crucified. He's the one that can make you clean. He's the one that can make you white and pure. And that is Christ. I'm getting ahead of myself. We're still in the Old Testament here. Or maybe you feel like Habakkuk and and God's given you a hard word. Maybe he's asking you to do something. Or maybe he's taking you through some place in your life and you're just like, this is too hard for me. I don't know if I can do that, God. I know what you want me to do. I just, that's going to hurt too much. Don't walk away. Worship. Where else are you going to go? Where else are you going to go? Yes. When God calls you to do things, he may call you to do things that are very hard. But obedience to this God always leads to more joy. It may be eventual joy, but it's always more. Now the rest of Habakkuk's prayer is essentially a meditation upon the exodus. When God judged Egypt and saved Israel. Habakkuk is asking God to do something like that again. So he essentially recites a poem. Look at verses 3 through 7. 
God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of cushion in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. As much as I would love, because there's a lot of beautiful things in this poem, as much as I would love to dig into the details of this, for time's sake, we're going to talk briefly. This is most likely an old song that was created by Israel in order to never forget what God did in the Exodus. In fact, in Exodus 13, it'll be up on the screen, Moses actually tells the people, commands the people of Israel to never forget the Exodus. Here's what he says in Exodus 13, verse 3. Then Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. But rather, rather than simply recite history, Habakkuk recites this poem. History is good, but it doesn't move the heart like poetry moves the heart. And the reason why is because God's salvation was never meant to merely be a recitation of facts for the head but a rejoicing in truth for the heart. I mean, is this not why we, we gather here on Sundays to sing about the marvelous work of the gospel and preach about the marvelous work of the gospel? Is it not why we sing songs like In Christ Alone? Is it not why we sing songs like Jesus is Better? I love that song. Is it not like how we're going to sing Singing in the Victory? We come here and we sing these songs. We do that because we come here on Sundays to have our hearts stirred up once again out of the muck and mire of our various circumstances and various weeks and various struggles and temptations. We come here to have the Holy Spirit of God stir up our hearts again out of the mundane and into the majestic of the glory of the gospel. And have our feet set once again upon the solid rock of Christ. On Christ the solid rock I stand. I love this line. you got to listen to this line. All other ground. All other ground. All other ground is sinking sand. I dare not trust the sweetest frame but wholly lean on Jesus' name. And that's what Habakkuk is doing. He's, he's reciting this poem to have his heart stirred once again towards God. Now watch as Habakkuk's, Habakkuk shifts from talking about God to communing with God. Verses 3 through 7 are all in the third person. I'm talking about God. I'm talking about this person over here. 
But verses 8 through 15 are in the second person. He's directly addressing God. Watch this. And again, listen, listen for the wrath, mercy theme. Remember, the core of God's prayer is in wrath, remember mercy. Verse 8. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. This section is Habakkuk in awe of God's wrath towards his enemies. Now, in, rather than defend against the common objection that people have about God's wrath, it might do us some good to follow Habakkuk's example and simply meditate upon it. Too many times, it's, and I, I've done this before, I've addressed God's wrath and, and tried to help people who don't understand why, how can God be wrathful? Sometimes we just need to meditate on it. God's wrath is his omnipotent, almighty, sovereign power, controlled, directed, and wielded by his divine fury and rage toward evil, injustice, and wickedness omnipotent power controlled by divine fury. And Pastor Mike, a lot of times, will make the distinction between God's passive wrath and active wrath. What you see here is the active wrath. Now, you may be wondering, how could it ever be good to meditate upon the wrath of God? I will just give you three reasons. Number one, it helps you understand the infinite price that Christ had to pay for your sins on the cross. When you understand the reason why hell is eternal is because it will take an eternity to make up for the blasphemy that sinners have sinned against God. So how could God, how could Jesus only suffer a few hours and save someone from eternal hell? It's because he endured an eternity of wrath in such a small, condensed time period. And as a result of this, number two, it intensifies the depth of our gratitude to God the Father for not withholding his son but delivering of his son 
to that wrath. It intensifies our worship. You did not withhold your son, but gave him up to the wrath. Glory, honor, and praise be to the one who was slain for me. And lastly, number three, it deepens your sorrow for those who are lost and in need of Christ. Have you ever marveled at the fact, if you're a Christian, have you ever marveled at the fact that you love Jesus? And why not someone else? Have you ever marveled, why do I believe in Jesus? I'm no, I'm no smarter than so-and-so. I'm no better than so-and-so, but here I am. I love Jesus. And that should deepen your sorrow and grief over those who do not know Christ. Because they will have to endure the wrath if they do not have Christ. Have you ever wondered, have you ever wondered, and this may blow some circuits, okay, and that's okay, why would God even create a universe in which his wrath would be displayed? He didn't have to. Why would he even do that? This is not an ethereal question. Paul the Apostle actually addresses the question. In Romans 9, 22 to 23. It'll be up on the screen. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Here's the purpose. Ready? In order to make known the riches of his glory, for vessels of mercy, which you prepare hands for glory. Here's how I would put it, and this is, I, my wife encouraged me to share this illustration because she said it was helpful for her. You know, New Jersey Turnpike, right? The godforsaken road on the... So you're, you're, you're traveling on one side of the road, and both sides are, are traffic-free. There's no traffic. And you, you, you enjoy that there's no traffic. It's nice. Right? No, no traffic. This is great. Woo. But imagine all of a sudden you're driving and then instantly there is bumper to bumper traffic for miles on the other side. What does that do for your gratitude for you being on the traffic free side? It deepens it. It intensifies it. It makes you more grateful and joyful that you're on that side. The reason why God even created a universe in which his wrath would be displayed is to highlight the infinite riches of his mercy for those who trust in Christ. And that's what Habakkuk is doing. In the eye of the hurricane, if you notice, verses 8 through 15, the majority of it is wrath. In the hurricane of the portrayal, the poetic portrayal of God's wrath in verses 8 through 15, there is this peaceful promise in verse 13 of salvation. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. 
Just as God was merciful to Israel in saving them from Egypt, so Habakkuk longs for God to be merciful to Israel when he judges the Chaldeans. And the, and the, the intense contrast of God's impending judgment and the promise of his mercy, the, such the stark contrast is too much to bear for Habakkuk. Look at verse 16. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Habakkuk's worshiped, worship has touched him on a physiological level. It has affected his biochemistry. Because when you are confronted with the godness of God, you cannot help but respond in emotion. Emotionless worship is not really worship. Here's how one scholar encourages us to view verse 16. Listen. Rather than despising the prophet for an excessive emotionalism, the reader should honor him for his sensitivity to the weight of the message he received. The more godly the person, the greater his fear of the Lord. And just an application. We will never discourage anyone from being appropriately expressive on Sunday. We're not going to let anyone hang and swing from the rafters and <laughs> sprinkle gold dust and stuff, but this is why I say appropriately expressive. God is honored by deep affections toward him. One of the things that, that the elders, we always talk about, is how encouraged we are, how deeply encouraged we are are the people here at Church of Bergen, the way you guys sing. If you, you need to realize that when you sing loudly before Pastor Mike or I come up to preach, it's like, it's like gospel steroids. The way it uplifts us, the way it encourages us, the way that it empowers us, and it makes us all the more eager to deliver the word in worship. And let me be clear, Worship is not just something you do before the sermon and after the sermon. Worship is from beginning to end. You worship through song and you worship through the word. And so express appropriately. If you sense, if, if, if I'm saying anything or Pastor Mike is saying anything that, is, that stirs up your heart, let it overflow in an appropriate expression of an amen, of a, of a let's go or yes sir, whatever it is. It's okay to raise your hands. It's okay to... To say prayers out loud whenever you're singing. Now, if you recall, my sermon is called Don't Walk Away. Uh, Habakkuk is confronted with the invincible purpose of God to vindicate his glory over all evil, injustice, and sin. And rather than walk away, he worships. And the last question I want to ask is, what keeps him from walking away? What keeps him from walking away? And the answer is, it's the prospect of another Exodus event happening in the future. 
that what God did back in the Exodus would happen again soon. Do you remember what God said to Pharaoh in Exodus 9.16? He says to Pharaoh, For this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You might say that what God did in the Exodus was like a gunshot that echoed into future generations. And it echoed into the ears of the inhabitants of Jericho and into the heart of Rahab the prostitute. And before they go into Jericho, they said, uh, Joshua sends in spies and they go and they encounter this prostitute. She takes them in to, to save them, preserve them. And this is what she says to them. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And Rahab believes in this God and she essentially prays the same, says the same thing as Habakkuk. Can you remember mercy for me and my family? Is there mercy for me and my family? I know we don't deserve it, but could you be merciful to me and my family? And God's merciful to them. He saves them. And rather than walk away, Rahab worships. But you and I have an even greater motivation to not walk away. Because Habakkuk's prayer came true many years later. Remember what he says back in verse 2? In the midst of the years, revive it. Your work, O Lord, Revive it. He didn't just revive it. He resurrected it in Christ. When Christ was crucified and buried, he was resurrected. This was the work that was foreshadowed in the Exodus. Because the Exodus was kind of like a symbol. It was a type of what God would do once again someday. In the old Exodus, the anointed one was led by Moses. In the new Exodus is led by the true anointed one by whom all the other truly anointed ones were pointing to. They were pointing to Christ. But the only difference is, in the old Exodus, God saved his anointed by judging his enemies. In the new Exodus, the gospel, God judged his anointed one on the cross to save his enemies. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we have been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life, Romans 5. Now instead of saying to God in wrath, remember mercy, we say, looking to Christ on the cross, you indeed remembered mercy. When Christ was on the cross, it wasn't just a display of God's wrath towards sin. It was also the supreme display of God's mercy towards those who would trust in him. Now when we are confronted with the unstoppable purpose of God to vindicate his glory, we do not tremble in fear of God's wrath because Christ trembled in the Garden of Gethsemane. He quaked under the prospect of God's judgment for him in the Garden of Gethsemane. So that now we can tremble under the weight of God's mercy toward us. So you and I, we don't walk away. We worship. 
Now, in closing, I just want to address just a few people. Uh, to the non-Christian, if you're here and you're not a Christian, um, my encouragement is don't walk away. I understand there are some things about God that are hard to swallow. I try to read my Bible once a year. I, I've got questions. I've got doubts, too. There are things in my head that I'm like, what? How, how can that be? There are some things that are hard to swallow. But you must know that behind the sovereign, almighty hand of God, by which he works all things for his glory, there is a tender heart of mercy in Christ available to you. You have only to do two things. Stop trusting in yourself and trust in Christ. I want to address two type of types of Christians. The first is the disgruntled Christian, the discouraged Christian. Again, I would say don't walk away. I understand that the Christian life is hard. Sin, sin sucks. And sometimes it feels like you're never, ever going to break free from some sort of thing that you're constantly struggling with. But what, why would you walk away? Where else are you going to go? I would encourage you with Hebrews 12, 3 through 4. It's been a very precious verse for me lately. Consider Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you and I might not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Or have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons and daughters? My son, my daughter, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son and daughter whom he receives. Don't be discouraged. Don't be disgruntled. Get up and keep walking. Now to the last person. Uh, to the person, to the Christian who's like, I'm not walking away. I'm here to worship. Uh, just a brief reminder that when you're worshiping today, you are not worshiping under fear of God's wrath, but under the weight of God's mercy towards you in Christ. And I want to close just in a very famous verse in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, which is a great contrast of God's wrath and mercy. And then I'll pray. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and he raised us up with him and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ let's pray our father we thank you for the way that Habakkuk has demonstrated for us that when we are confronted with your godness, your unstoppable purpose to 
glorify yourself over all evil, sin, and injustice. Help us to not walk away, but to worship Jesus Christ. Encourage our hearts now as we sing to you and take the Lord's Supper. In Jesus' name, amen.